Following the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, questions arise about what happens next. Let's hope that, that we do not see Afghanistan become a place where new terror attacks on the U.S. or on our allies are organized. The child tax credit equates to millions in federal dollars for Arizona families. They're using this for food, for um, child care, for, you know, getting out of debt. As the pandemic continues, Arizona's economy rebounds. Of this year, Arizona has replaced 97% of the jobs that we lost during those initial months of the pandemic. Hello and welcome to Arizona 360. I'm Tony Paniagua, filling in for Lorraine Rivera. Thanks for joining us. Now that the U.S. has withdrawn military efforts in Afghanistan, questions remain about what happens next and the greater implications for peace across the world. We got insight from Daniel Rothenberg. He is co-director of the Center on the Future of War at Arizona State University's School of Politics and Global Studies. The U.S. should remain being concerned about the dangers of externally organized terrorist attacks. Perhaps the most interesting and positive outcome in reflecting back on 20 years after 9-11 is that we've been fortunate to not have a single successful externally organized uh, terrorist attack in the United States. We've had domestic terror attacks, we've had lone wolf terror attacks, but we have not had another 9-11. We have to be vigilant, we have to be concerned about that, Clearly, the changing situation in Afghanistan presents a challenge. Let's hope that that we do not see Afghanistan become a place where new terror attacks on the U.S. or on our allies are organized. So billions of dollars are spent in Afghanistan trying to, quote, transform that nation, make it more democratic, more open to women and minorities. Do you think moving forward, all of this will have worked? Uh, Was something accomplished now that the Taliban is back in power? It's a difficult question to know what was accomplished and what what was wasted. Massive amounts of money have been wasted, and the U.S. government has been documenting that through the the uh, special inspector general for Afghan reconstruction, CIGAR. Um, so this isn't something we don't know about. It is interesting how little Americans have paid attention to Afghanistan and how distant both Afghanistan and Iraq and some of the other other sites of the post 9/11 wars have been for Americans who can't recognize these places on maps often. And this tells us something about what it means to be engaged in countries in this way. And I don't think that our our leaders or our society effectively figured out how to talk about these far off places. So what do you think it will take for people to care more, at least on this side of the world, the United States? It's not easy to present a distant place like Afghanistan, one of the poorest countries in the world, to present that in a way that is readable, that makes sense for ordinary Americans sitting at home and dealing with their own lives and issues. I don't think there's some trick there. I do think the refugee situation may humanize some of all of this, but frankly, it's, it's, a, it's quite late. This is two decades of enormous investments, uh, enormous risks and sacrifices on the part of Americans and Afghans. And uh, what we have to think about is how to productively move forward, but uh, this has been a, a devastating time for, for Afghanistan and a time of sort of reckoning uh, for our own country. And you spent some of your years in Afghanistan. Can you tell us a little bit about those experiences? What were you doing? Uh, I, I initially went to Afghanistan as an assistant to the UN Independent Expert for Human Rights in Afghanistan. And we were trying to uncover human rights violations com- uh, occurring around the country and submitting reports to various authorities. And then I worked on rule of law and human rights projects for a number of years and spent a lot of time as part of that 
broad international effort to try to rebuild the country and try to create a kind of new new Afghanistan in the in the wake of the Taliban regime and after the U.S. invasion in 2001. So we've been hearing a lot about the wars and the violence and the conflict in Afghanistan. What would you like to say about the people and the land since you spent some of your time there? Well, it's an incredibly beautiful country. It's physically beautiful. Uh, working with Afghans, I always found, was a real honor. It's difficult to explain. It's a complicated country, of course. It's a diverse population. There are enormous rural and urban divides, especially with the ways that have grown in the post 9-11 era. Uh, it's a beautiful place, but of course, it's a country that suffered so many tragedies that uh, just, just can't help but worry about where things are going now. And I do think that the U.S. has a really significant responsibility for our Afghan friends and partners, both in terms of bringing folks here and just generally retaining a commitment to the country. How do you think uh, the United States will best engage moving forward with Afghanistan? If you could recommend a way or a policy for the United States to undertake with Afghanistan moving forward, what would it be? Well, one of the questions is now that the Taliban has won the war, at least by controlling Afghan territory or most of it, uh, what will they do? They did a pretty terrible job of governing the country back when they ran the country, and they were unable to get international recognition for their state. Only three countries in the world were willing to recognize Afghanistan. But we don't know what it's going to be like moving forward. Uh, it's a country that is going to have a hard time. They're facing a terrible drought. Uh, most of the government officials have been paid by international funding, that's teachers and healthcare workers and security force uh, members. So what will the state do moving forward? The Taliban probably needs significant international support to continue a highly functioning state, but we don't know how it's going to play out. I very much hope that the U.S. retains its commitment to Afghan people, even as it has to complexly negotiate what it means to work with the Taliban. Daniel Rothenberg, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Here in Arizona, efforts are underway to support Afghans when they arrive. Atifa Rawan is an Afghan-American. She was born in Afghanistan and came to the U.S. for higher education. A U of A library faculty emerita, she has traveled to Afghanistan 15 times since 2002. Every day, she's been speaking with family and colleagues in Afghanistan. Here's Atifa Rawan in her own words and pictures. Life in Afghanistan was very simple, but yet very beautiful. The Afghan culture always was very rich. The family was very important. It was the center of everything for us. And we were raised by an, a large number of extended family members. Life in Afghanistan, for some people, um, it still goes on. But the, the issues are there's a lot of them or a lot of my colleagues are just staying at home and not doing anything. Universities are not open. Banks are running out of money. But at the ATM, only a minimum of uh, 200 Afghanis people can take out. That's equivalent to a $2.50. And so if you have a large family of 10, how are you going to survive with, with $2.50, you know? Afghanistan is located in a, in, a, in, a, in a part of the world that is surrounded by uh, hostile neighbors. Uh, by, by um, you know, by also it's, it's, it's just been isolated from other, other, other areas for a long time. Taliban actually has invaded Kabul. This is the fourth time they invaded in 92, and then again in 90, 
96, actually they took power in 96 and they stayed until 2011. And then of course now, um, but the 9-11 is an important uh, and a sad time for all of us in the US is because we remember that, that major incidents. But problem and turmoil in Afghanistan started way before that. I've been gone 15 times since 2002, and I have projects there. I see, I see progress in education. I see progress in, in media, journalism. I see progress among the artists. Um, but then by and large, there's not anything else happening in the country. I worry about the fact that the United States and its allies were the major employers. And they employed thousands and thousands of people in Afghanistan. It's a driver, it's a cook, it's a, uh, it's a fixer, it's a, a translator, you name it. And there were multi-bases in Afghanistan uh, built by, by US and its allies. So all those people, not everybody could leave the country and come here. Uh, but they, they will be without job. For them, it's also a sense of uh, betrayal by, by their own government, by their own president, a sense of um, abandonment by the United States, um, a sense of uh, being afraid of what Taliban are going to do to them. I think the uh, United States and its allies needs to rethink about what to do, how to you know, make sure that these people survive. The nation would to not totally collapse. I mean, I, I of course, as, a, as an individual, as an Afghan-American, I, I always have a hope. But at this point, things are so confusing and so many uh, uh, issues. Uh, you know, they, I don't know who to blame, whether we have to blame our former president for creating a, a world stage for the Taliban, or we have to blame our present president for having an hasty withdrawal, or blame the, the lack of leadership of the Afghan uh, government. And, I mean, a lot of money was spent to build the armed forces in Afghanistan, but the, at the end, they did not perform. I'm not sure what's going on. I think I'm not the only one. This is the, uh, the mind, in the mind of all of us. The child tax credit program is in full swing across the country. In Arizona, the Treasury Department says more than 1.4 million families have received an average of more than $400 these last two months. That's an extra $344 million throughout the state. Stanford Children Arizona says the funding has come at a critical time. We learned more from Georgina Monsalvo. She is the Arizona Organizing Director for Stanford Children Arizona. I have seen firsthand a lot of the impact that this is having in, in Arizona families, and there is a lot of need. We know fam families lost um, their main uh, breadwinners from due to COVID, um, affordable housing, childcare. So we know there is a lot of need, and this is um, this is going to be very beneficial to Arizona families. Uh, you said you have various examples of people that you know personally. Can you give us an example, perhaps, of a single mom or a two-parent household? 
Yeah. So just last week I was at a community meeting and we, I was actually talking about the child tax credit and creating awareness and a family came over and they're like, you know, we've been living out of motel for the last couple of months because we haven't been able to find affordable housing and they have four kids. So this money that they received and that will, they will continue to receive will help them gather, you know, the first deposit, you know, the first month's rent and a deposit to be able to find a stable home to live. Another single mom that she unfortunately lost her husband due to COVID and he was the only one that worked. So she was having a really hard time getting back into the workforce and this money is helping her get on her feet. And I'll just end with another example is I am a single mother and due to COVID and everything that happened, my son is really behind in in school. He needs tutoring services. So this money will help me pay for those services. So I am benefiting from the child tax credit as well. So that is that is going to be a tremendous help for everyone. And without the tax credit, how might you have been impacted? Well, to be honest, I probably wouldn't have been able to afford those services uh, because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't in my budget with everything that's going on. I wouldn't been able to afford it. So um, that's those are just a few examples of how the child tax credit is benefiting us. There are some cases where people are choosing to opt out of the child tax credit. What does that entail? Why is that happening? So I think there is a lot of confusion in the community right now. First of all, some families think that they have to pay this back. That is one of the things that we're seeing. Another um, thing that we're seeing is that some families are planning to buy a home or, you know, they need a car. So they're just saving it till the end of the tax year so they could get the, you know, the full lump together. Georgina, is there a concern that some families are getting used to this extra money and this child tax credit and therefore if it does expire, they will be set up to fail somehow. Yes, and that is that is another of the things that are the organization Stand for Children that I work for that we are um, creating awareness, right, and making sure that families know this is a one-time thing, but also sharing their stories, right, with elected officials, sharing it with um, our senators, because we have to make sure that we make this permanent because we know that this is a way out of poverty families. They're using this for school supplies, some families just to get by from month to month, and even some families getting out of debt. So it is very important that we make sure that we are creating awareness in our community, but also advocating to make this a permanent change. I would imagine you're also educating families about not wasting this opportunity and not going out there and buying these uh, special gifts or vacations that they might have wanted a long time ago. Right. And, and you know, from my experience and what I've heard from families is some families, you know, they're using this for food for um, childcare, for, you know, getting out of debt. And and one of the other important things is the child tax credit this one time is eligible for non-filers. So for example, if you don't make enough money to file for taxes, but you have kids, you're still eligible for this payment. So that is another, um, another thing that is really benefiting those families that don't even make that much money. Georgina, as it currently stands, when is the child tax credit due to expire? So the child tax credit doesn't really expire. What expires is the extra amount that the Biden administration is giving. So the advance payments that we're receiving from July to December, and then the other half we're receiving the next tax year, what happens is if this is not made permanent, then basically it goes back to what the usual amount is. We wouldn't be getting this advance credit from that we're getting from July to December. 
Okay, any other issues that Stand for Children is working on right now? Yeah, so we we are working on, you know, creating awareness for the child tax credit, but we're also working on making sure that every child has an equitable education because we know that um, education funding in Arizona is lacking. So um, one of the other things that we're working on is uh, making sure that there is education funding for every Arizona student. Okay, Georgina Monsalvo, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. The child tax credit is contributing to the economy, and so is the dip in unemployment claims and the booming housing market. It's all part of Arizona's economic recovery story. George Hammond is a professor at the U of A's Eller College of Management. We spoke with him earlier this week. Well, it looks like it's improving. Um, you know, the state lost a huge amount of jobs from February to April of last year, and we've gradually been adding them back. Uh, as of July of, uh, of this year, Arizona has replaced 97% of the jobs that we lost during those initial months of the pandemic. That's uh, much better than the, the national economy, which has replaced about 75% of the jobs lost during the, those early months of the pandemic. Uh, you know, across industries, it's still, you know, leisure and hospitality, the travel and tourism jobs and local government jobs are still lagging significantly below where they were before the pandemic began. So with a 97% replacement in the number of jobs, at least, are people just going to different industries? Because we hear over and over that, for example, as you mentioned, the service industry, restaurants, hotels, etc., are really still lacking personnel. Yep. Uh, people are, at least to some extent, switching industries. You know, most sectors of the state economy are still below where they were in terms of employment before the pandemic began. There are now two exceptions. One is financial activities. So real estate brokers, real estate agents, uh, you know, uh, bankers, tellers, those financial activities are now basically back to where they were before the pandemic began. Really, the one sector that's really stood out um, in terms of job growth, even during the pandemic, was transportation and warehousing. So, you know, warehouse jobs and delivery jobs uh, really took off during the pandemic, and that reflects the shift to uh, online shopping and delivery services. The federal tax credit uh, rollout has begun. What do you, are you seeing any measurable impacts to families here in the state of Arizona? Monthly payments related to the child tax credit um, those began uh, in July, and that is, uh, you know, contributing to the uh, to household incomes and household spending nationwide and here in Arizona. What you want to keep uh, in mind is that there were there, you know, during 2020 and early 2021, there was just an incredible infusion of federal income support flowing throughout the nation and into Arizona. And that is starting to dissipate. We're seeing the unemployment insurance benefits um, rapidly uh, decline. We'll see those um, uh, drop nationwide as we go through uh, September. The housing market is uh, facing unprecedented growth. Uh, what is your reaction to what is happening? 
Yeah, we really are seeing um, a really hot housing market with really rapidly growing house prices. Uh, you know, over the year gains in, in house prices in Phoenix and Tucson were in the neighborhood of 30% in June and July. So very rapid uh, increases. And there's a, there's a number of factors driving that. Some of uh, some of them are on the demand side. Uh, you know, we're likely seeing increased migration to Arizona as remote workers, um, uh, particularly those in the high cost Western metropolitan areas look for lower cost areas to live. And certainly that's, um, that's Arizona. Uh, but we're also seeing supply side factors. So housing inventory is very low and, and declined during the pandemic. Looks like that may be starting to, to turn the corner a little bit, and we'll see some increased housing inventory going forward. Um, you know, on the in terms of new housing construction, the input prices for things like lumber, copper, plastics, uh, you know, drywall prices uh, are still rising really rapidly. That's putting upward pressure on new uh, home prices, and that's translating into upward pressure on existing home prices and even on rent. How sustainable do you think this will be? Because I know already people are saying, it looks like I will never be able to afford a house. And these are people with educations and decent salaries. Uh, the increases in, in home prices, I think, are, are temporary. Uh, I think it's connected. You know, what we're seeing with input prices for new construction, that's probably temporary related to, um, uh, you know, supply chains getting back to normal. Um, there are some labor shortages uh, that I think are, are short-lived. I think the demand pressure is also uh, short-lived. Those remote, remote workers that are, that are kind of reallocating across the U.S., that's something that will you know, last for the next year or so. And then, uh, and then thing, you know, population growth will, will get back to something more normal. George Hammond, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Affordable housing is becoming more difficult to find in much of the country, and that's putting extra pressure on nonprofit organizations that try to help. Habitat for Humanity Tucson is celebrating 40 years of getting people into their own homes, but rising prices and the coronavirus had made it abnormally challenging the last couple of years. We spoke to the group's CEO at a new development in the city where dreams are coming true for some residents. We're at Carter's Court. It's a subdivision of 19 new homes that we're building in the Flying Wells neighborhood. Uh, we're on Rosalind uh, Way, which is uh, certainly a tribute to President Carter and Mrs. Carter. Uh, we named it that because we bought uh, the property during our 39th year as a habitat, and he was the 39th president. So it has a really great tie. I would imagine most of these were being built in 2020, perhaps uh, earlier this year as well, during the pandemic. Uh, how has yeah. that had an impact on the construction? Well, um, in October of 2019, when we started the neighborhood, uh, we thought we'd be done a lot quicker. But the pandemic has really impacted us with the number of volunteers that we can have on, on site, uh, the number of uh, subcontractors. Subcontractors are almost impossible to get these days. The trades are really scarce here in Tucson, and the cost of the commodities used to build a house have escalated dramatically. We saw lumber take a huge climb. It's come down a little bit, nowhere near the levels it was pre-pandemic. We're still looking at three, four, five times the cost for some of our materials, and we're working with our vendors. We're working with local partners and getting uh, whatever we can and securing things to the best of our ability. But it's slow. There are a lot of disruptions in the supply chain, uh, 
a lot of cost increases for a lot of reasons. So we're just doing what we can with the volunteers we have and we have a really great core of volunteers that are out here every day and we're making sure people get in houses when they really need it. The pandemic has really shown us how important the safety of someone's home is. My name is Jesse Neal. Uh, I moved into this house uh, about April, the end of April. Um, and right now I'm just trying to get into school. So that's what I'm doing. So what was your house hunting situation like prior um, to this house? I was thinking about using my VA loan at one point, but um, I got it provided an opportunity to get to work with Habitat and do sweat equity. And I always tell everybody about it, try to get people in the program and see what they can do, because I believe everybody should have a house if they want it. And as you know, house prices are booming right oh, now. Yeah. It's become really difficult for people, some people, to buy a house here in the city. How did this make a difference in your life? It's a blessing, man. Um, there's no interest on it. Uh, I get 30 years to pay it off, or I could do 15 if I choose to, if I choose to pay an extra. Um, it's just, it's a blessing. It's, you know, along with all interest rates going up and supply and demand, it's just, it's so nice to have a program that helps people out that aren't able to afford it, where it helps them able to afford it. Well, I think land's going to be our biggest problem. We do have a small land bank, so we're good to build uh, this current fiscal year. We're building uh, 13 houses in, uh, in Marana. Uh, we'll work uh, near, the, um, near A Mountain the following year. Uh, we are just looking at small infill projects that we can do wherever we can get land. This project uh, kind of landed in our lap. Someone wasn't going to develop it. We were able to purchase it and uh, build here. So we're always looking for opportunities. Does it get depressing, challenging? What, <laughs> what uh, adjectives would you use? Well, I would say all of those things. It gets frustrating and discouraging and it's very challenging. But we have amazing volunteers and donors that have really come through during the pandemic. And if you focus on the goal, which are getting families and homes, there's nothing better. Just you know, seeing the kids play here in the street, knowing that families are safe. So in the end, there's a reward. And that reward is well worth all of the frustration. And you cannot provide houses for, let's say, tens of thousands of people. But for that one family, it sure is a big difference, right? Yeah, that's sort of the mantra on a bad day. One family, one day, right? So this year, we got six, 16 new families have moved into houses during the past year. Since the beginning of the pandemic, 19 families have moved into new houses. And we're excited about that. One of the other projects you have coming along is the Chuck Center. Can you talk to us about that, please? Absolutely. The Chuck Center is going to leverage two problems, the need for skilled trades in southern Arizona and the need for affordable housing. Currently, Pima College, JTED, many of the uh, unions and high schools have trade programs where they're building walls, they're wiring, they're doing plumbing, but on sort of fake you know, houses or, or walls that they then disassemble. Uh, the Czech Center is going to allow us to build uh, during all weather conditions, fully climate controlled, uh, and it's going to allow us to train students on all of the trades. Well, we're building habitat houses that the wall sections then move out to the site. The other amazing thing about the Chuck Center is it's going to allow us to buy in bulk or when we see uh, lumber or doors or something that we use on a regular basis at a good price, we'll be able to get it, store it in safe conditions, and then use it to build more housing. I love this house. This is, I'm not moving from this house still. I'm planning to stay here till I pass away. <laughs> That's a long time. It's a 50-year roof. I have maybe 40 years left. 
pass it on to the family after it's paid off, then somebody else has a place to live. That's all for now. Thanks for joining us. To get in touch, visit us on social media or send an email to Arizona360 at azpm.org and let us know what you think. We'll see you next week.